Hey, this is Jordan Sutton, pastor at Clear Path Church. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. We appreciate you listening. A little about our community. We love to come together. We love to come to the Lord's table together. Uh, we're a community trying to be led by the Spirit, just walking through Scripture together, walking through life together. If this message is an encouragement to you, bring some hope to your life at the end of the sermon. There'll be a little bit of information about how you can get in touch with us. Stay tuned, and thanks for joining. for this time. I pray that you would encourage us, you bless us, that your spirit of wisdom and revelation would be here, that we might know you, we might know who we're called to be, we might know all that you've given us, Lord. We bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Thank you, Jason, for those lovely tunes. How many of you thankful for what Jesus is doing right now? He, we are, I believe, just in a special season where God is doing wonderful things. And so anyway, I'm going to kick it over to Zane. So uh, I talked two weeks ago um, to you guys about, um, I talked about evil spirits some. And uh, you guys seemed to listen pretty intently. And so I was like, I should up my game and talk about Satan a little bit. Right? Makes sense. Um, so... <laughs> To get you guys, uh, I'm not only going to talk about Satan, but to get you guys pumped up for this subject, we all forgive me if we go to like 1230. Is that cool? Nobody's going to starve to death between now and then. All right. Well, to get you all pumped up for this subject today, I've chosen a very uh, important piece of church history in the form of a short film masterpiece. Um, so... It's going to be a little bit awkward getting on screen because we had to pull it up on YouTube, but let's watch this together. And uh, in advance, I will say you are welcome. You're welcome. Man, that's... Listen, if you didn't grow up with Carmen, you missed it, all right? That is, uh, it, it has some sauce on it if you can get past the like major cheese, you know, but it's also just really fun now, so I love it. But now that you guys are warmed up, 1 John 3, 8 tells us <laughs> that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's a strong statement. Catch, catches my eye whenever I see it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So, when the Bible talks about Satan, it generally uses the term uh, ha-satan, I assume is how they would pronounce it. And it's actually the Satan, okay? So this is mostly Old Testament we're talking about. And when the Bible mentions Satan, it doesn't say Satan did something. It says the Satan did something. And the Satan means the accuser. 
And if we look at the name often used in the New Testament for Satan, which is the name, is the word devil, this name means slanderer. So the, the two names that we have in the Old Testament and New Testament, they can also be kind of translated just to mean adversary, but they mean, but they mean accuser and slanderer. And so I want to look at the work of this slanderer, this accuser, today, what he's trying to do, and I just want to see how we might be able to come against that. I'm going to start in the book of Job. So um, we're kind of going to cover all the way from the first chronological book of the Bible, Job, all the way to the book of Revelation. I'm not going to read all of it, but um, basically Satan appears all the way from beginning to end. And so in Job 1, 6 through 11, it says, by the way, we don't have all these scriptures on the screen. I'm just going to read them to you guys today, um, especially just to keep the time down. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So when we look at Satan, the accuser, this is the, the primary thing that I realize is that he, he is the accuser of you. Put yourself in Job's place or anyone else's place throughout scripture. Satan is the accuser of you. Satan has been seemingly granted some sort of temporary permission uh, to heaven to, uh, that will be cut off one day in order to play the role of um, prosecuting attorney, if you will. And so Satan is always doing this. Hey, you know what? He's not really that good. He's got a lot of problems. You know, if you did this, he would curse you. And it's always just accusation, accusation, accusation. And it doesn't always even have to be like accusing you of sin necessarily. Like in this case, he's saying, hey, if you didn't give Job a perfect life, then he would, he would sin. He would even go so far as to curse you. But in Matthew 4, we read this when Jesus is in the wilderness. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan's accusations are not always, um, they're not always like a sin accusation. Sometimes they're different than that. Sometimes he doesn't have to accuse you of sin. He can just make you feel like you need to prove yourself. Or he can make you feel like maybe you're not good enough. And so when we, when we look at the work of Satan on earth, one of the main ways that he accuses each of, each of us is often with guilt, with shame, with self-consciousness, uh, feeling like you'll never be able to, to escape sin, you're not good enough, you're not holy enough. And these accusations come at us a lot throughout our lives. And so... 
That's the first way that I see Satan working is that he will accuse you of not being good enough. But the second way that I see him doing it, and this one I think is a little bit more hidden, is that he accuses our brothers and sisters. In Revelation 12, we read this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. This is future speaking, obviously. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So sometimes, because often because we get so self-conscious, like we did there in step one, we get very stuck in what is happening to us and only us, and then another person appears to uh, happens to cause us difficulty, right? And let's say our kids don't listen, our spouses don't maybe show us the love that we want to receive that day, our friend says something that offends us, and then, you know what we commonly start listening to? We start listening to the voice of the accuser over that person. So the, the accusations that we hear are not just about us. It, it comes into us whenever someone offends us or frustrates us. And then we hear in our head, hey, look what they did to you. Look how they hurt you. Look how much harder they're making your life. They, I mean, they really aren't that great of a person, are they? They've got a lot of problems. And so we think, oh, I'm just annoyed at this person, and I have a right to be annoyed at this person. I have a right to be offended because they did something wrong to me. But usually, we're just listening to the voice of the accuser who's, getting in our, who's jumping in our, our head and saying, hey, what do you think about this? And you're like, oh, you're right. I'm really awesome, and that person is screwing everything up. And so, we have a choice of which voice we will listen to as the discussions go on in the spirit realm. We will either agree with the accuser or we will agree with the voice of Jesus, the voice of truth over people. But we do have that choice and we need to be aware that Satan's not only accusing us, but that he's accusing others and that he, he tries to put those thoughts in our minds. I'm going to read a bunch of scripture today, so y'all just try to follow me. In 2 Corinthians 2, it says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And so here, Paul tells us to forgive one another in order that Satan might not outwit us. Okay? See, Paul's recognizing the plan of the enemy. He's recognizing the, the name of the enemy, that he's the accuser, that he's the slanderer, and he's understanding that whenever the accusation comes, what we need to do is quickly forgive and comfort the person, not pile on the guilt, right? Not pile on what they owe us. 
Here is what ends up happening. We don't just become personally affected by the accuser. We become the accuser. See? We don't, we don't just, eventually, we don't just become someone, an outside player in the game who's agreeing, but we actually start playing the role of Satan to another person because we become their accuser. Y'all see how important that is? And I've, I have felt very convicted of this over the past month. I shared this with my, with my uh, house church one day, just like when we were talking about, everyone was saying like, what's God working on? And I was like, you know, I keep realizing that I'm being the accuser of my family members. Like my kids frustrate me or my wife frustrates me. And then instead of coming at it from a, an angle that says we don't fight against flesh and blood, <laughs> but against the spirit world, I come at it from a point of like, man, you're really messing my life up today. Like you're really screwing my day up and I don't appreciate that. And like you stink, you know what I mean? Like you're the worst. <laughs> How many of you have ever gotten an argument and then like it just like you end up saying things like that are just way over the top. You're just like, you are the worst person. How? No, I'm not even gonna keep going. All right. Dave's done that before. I understand, Dave. I heard your moan. But then, instead of hearing, look what they did to you, we say, look what you did to me. Look how you hurt me. It wasn't just one time. It was over and over again. Maybe you did the same thing over and over again. How many times do you expect me to forgive you? Right? And this is a question the disciples asked Jesus. How many times should we really forgive? Like, and what does Jesus tell them? They say seven times maybe? That sounds like a lot. I could forgive the same thing seven times. Like I'm being really generous here. And Jesus is like, how about seven times 70? I don't think he's giving a real limit. But I think that, you know, Jesus knows and he's trying to teach the disciples. Like the accuser will keep accusing as long as we agree. And as long as we agree, it's like I talked about a couple weeks ago. That gives a foothold for Satan for, for spirits, for other negative things to come in your life and to take a grip. And then you down the road, you go, where did that come from? And then you may, if you could put it all together, you might realize, oh, this came from me being really bitter and unforgiving and like agreeing with the accuser and becoming the accuser. And so it made my heart hard or it made my heart darkened. And whenever we see things in our lives, like comparison, like hatred, jealousy, unforgiveness. See, this is a sign that we've begun to agree with the accuser over other people's lives, right? It's not, it's not exactly the same because it's, it's not necessarily, I mean, probably we often have both of them, but it's not always the same as like the guilt and shame where like, oh, I've, Satan has said something bad about me and I've agreed with him rather than believing for who God created me to be. But this instead is... Satan has accused someone else and I have let it make me bitter because I agreed with him and I helped him. And I want to talk about one other way real quick that Satan accuses and then I'm going to move away from Satan for... This really struck me in, uh, in when we were having a prayer time up here one Wednesday. Someone was talking about, I don't remember what they were talking about, but I think they were talking about that they have like a lot of anxiety about a situation. And I had been thinking about that Satan is the accuser. And I thought, 
God, how does anxiety fit into that? And then I just immediately realized, well, things like anxiety and, uh, and fear come whenever Satan accuses God of something and we believe him. So I'm going to show it to you right here. It's, it's in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, food, eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the picture here that Satan paints? It's actually that God's not that good and he doesn't actually want the best for you. God's being selfish. He knows that you're going to be so much better if you just have this knowledge. And so like, so then man becomes, once again, self-conscious, like self-centered, and goes, oh, I want that, right? I want my eyes to be opened. So Satan's accusation here is like, is basically God's not that good, right? What God told you isn't true. You shouldn't believe for what God spoke right? The healing that you believe for, God probably doesn't want to heal it. You know, like I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's what comes to our mind because there are times like when I've been praying for someone and I'm like, God, do you want to heal this person or do you not want to heal this person? And I'm not here to make some big uh, healing theology today. But what I've been thinking about lately is I'm like, man, I really just need to like get back in my heart to like fully believing every time I pray for someone that God wants to heal them. Because otherwise, what I'm likely doing is I'm likely agreeing with the accuser that, oh, well, maybe God just doesn't want to heal this one. Or maybe they have some sin that's keeping them from getting healed. It won't be your fault if you pray and they don't get healed. We make every reason that people don't get healed, right? Like, I'm not saying, I'm not claiming to have every perfect theological answer, but I've been thinking to myself lately, I'm like, you know what? Like it says, these signs shall follow those who believe. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And I'm like, well, maybe I don't lay my hands on the sick enough because I don't actually believe it enough, right? These signs shall follow those who believe. Well, if you don't lay your hands on the sick, they're not getting healed. And if you don't believe that God wants to heal, then you're probably not going to lay your hands on the sick as much. And you're probably sometimes in that process, agreeing with the accuser, I know that God said he wants to heal. I know that God said that he wants to help people, but that he's, he might not want to do it in this case, right? So we let these little, these little bits of theology and these little bits of like miracles that we hoped for and missed and whatnot, we let them change our opinion of who God is. And then, and then Satan comes and jumps on that and he says, oh, you know what? That's because God's not as good as you thought he was. That's because God's intentions aren't as good as you hoped they were. And then we go, oh yeah, maybe you're right, you know? And, and we, as Jordan's talked about before, we, sometimes we have in, even held up doubt as wisdom. And doubt is agreeing with the accusation of Satan, of the accuser against God. Maybe he's not that good. Now I want to pivot 
I know we're talking about the accuser, we're talking about Satan, but I don't want to just hang out on um, Satan or demons too much because they're not our focus, and um, I'm not, frankly, that worried about them. Um, So I want to read to you from John 8. I want to talk a little bit about Jesus and how he fits into this. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses said to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. You see, when Jesus, when Jesus says, gives this speech of let he is without sin throw the first stone, there's only one of those, and it's him. Right? Everyone else drops their stone, but Jesus, Jesus has every right to throw the stone. Because Jesus was perfect, and he was without sin, and he was the judge. He was the rightful judge. But what we're going to learn about Jesus is that Jesus is both judge and defense attorney. It's cheating. We cheated the system. Jesus is both our king and high priest. It's absolutely cheating the system. Like, Imagine if you're the defense attorney and you come in and, or I'm sorry, if you imagine if you're the prosecuting attorney and you come in and you're like, this man's guilty of murder. And then the defense attorney is like, no, he's not. By the way, I'm also the judge. Like, okay. And that's what Jesus is doing, is, is doing here. He's showing that he's both king and high priest. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a bit of a... Uh, I'm going to check my time here. I'm not going to keep you all here forever. All right, I'm going to try to go through this really quickly. Y'all are going to have to follow me because I did, I've done some uh, Bible digging here. Many of you know that I like to find interesting threads throughout Scripture, and I found an interesting one today. So go with me. I'm going to go as quick as I can. <clears throat> the Bible tells us, and I preached about this maybe, I don't know, six months ago, that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to talk about, a lot about Melchizedek today, But this may mean many things. But one thing that sets Melchizedek apart from other priests is that he was also a king. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. In fact, his name, if you break it in half, some people think that Melchizedek appearing to Abraham in the Old Testament was a a visitation from God. If you break the name Melchizedek down, the first half of it actually does mean king, and the second, of it, the second part of it means basically imparter of righteousness. So even his name itself means that he's a king and a priest. 
In Israel, a king could not be a priest, and a priest could not be a king. The kings were from the lineage of David, and the priests were from the lineage of Aaron. And if someone were to be both, that would be far too powerful. So you had to be from the lineage of David to be a king. You had to be from the lineage of Aaron to be a priest. Melchizedek is a king and priest. Like I said, his name means king of righteousness. And this echoes his kingly and priestly functions. He's actually the first person in the Bible that we see to be a priest, to be called a priest. So Jesus lived in a time where there was no Israelite king and there was no Israelite high priest. You have to realize the history of what's going on here. Rome has oppressed the Jewish people and they have appointed Herod to be king of the Jews. Herod was a cruel man. And in order to control the Jews, he did something that kind of seemed nice. He built a new temple to replace Solomon's incredible temple that had been torn down years before. But he didn't run the temple in a holy way. For example, you might have Jews who would want to kill an animal as a sacrifice and as a gift to God, but those, those Jews would have to, they were required to buy that animal from a special, a special shopkeeper in the temple. And the, the rulers of the temple chose those shopkeepers, and the shopkeepers were allowed to ask for really big prices, and people could not bring any other animals, even if it was a really high-quality animal. So basically, he sets up this temple and says, I'm going to be really nice to you Jews. I'm going to give you your temple back. You can worship as you already wanted to, but he's really just doing it so he can take advantage of them. And there was just a lot of cruelty and a lot of um, manipulation. The other thing here is that the Romans also appointed the high priests to work in the temple. Okay, so in the past... God would appoint the high priest, and they were from the lineage of Aaron. But now, we had one particular family that gave a lot of money to the government. And so people from that family, when you read about like Caiaphas, for example, these are people from one family who gave a lot of money to the government, and so the government would always make one person from that family high priest for the Jews. Okay? So not only do the Jews no longer have an actual king of their own, of their own but they also don't have an actual high priest of their own. There were some priests that still worked in the temple, but not the high priest who had the highest calling and the highest duty. So the line of David's kingship and the line of Aaron's high priesthood had been broken. Y'all following me? Okay, so Luke 3 traces Mary's, Mary, the mother of Jesus. It traces her lineage back to David and Matthew 1 traces Joseph, which is obviously not Jesus' actual dad, but his, um, I don't know, what do we say, adopted dad? However you say that. Um, traces his lineage to David as well, actually. So when we see Jesus, we can see that what people want him to be king. And he does have the bloodline to be king in both a heavenly way and an earthly way. But he does not have the earthly bloodline to be a priest. You following me? He's not from Aaron's lineage. Although there was no God-appointed high priest at this time because of the Romans, let's look at the two requirements that someone would have to have to be high priest. One, like I said, you had to have a bloodline 
that led back to Aaron. And two, you had, it was merit. You had to be deserving in God's eyes. So Jesus did not carry the first requirement. Um, but it's very interesting because it seems that there was one who did likely carry that, uh, did likely qualify. I'm going to read to you about it. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abia. Abia, for the record, is a descendant of Aaron. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Someone tell me who Zechariah and Elizabeth gave birth to. John the Baptist. Jesus' cousin, right? Really cool story. I mean, I don't even even have time to get into all of it today. And then, not only do we know that John the Baptist was from the line of Aaron on both sides, but we also find out this. Luke 7, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. So it appears that it's quite possible that John has both, the, John the Baptist has both the lineage of Aaron and the merit in God's eyes, that there's been no one greater than him. So I'm just proposing this to you. This is not a fact, but I think it's quite likely and, and scholars tend to lean this direction. Is it possible that John the Baptist was acting as God's chosen high priest? The high priest's role was this. You're going to like this. To identify the perfect lamb to be sacrificed on behalf of the people. And John sees Jesus come up and the crowd's with him. And and it says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John, acting in the authority of high priest, would logically also be the one to ceremonially ceremonially prepare Jesus as the new high priest, even though the role was being passed from one lineage to another, now to a more perfect lineage that could not only be priest, but also king. When God chose Aaron and his sons to be priest, he gave certain regulations One thing that he did is he prepared them by washing them with water. Another thing he did was anoint them with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. You guys tell me what happens whenever what John does with Jesus. We see John, the descendant of Aaron, baptizing Jesus, and we see the Holy Spirit descend to show his presence and approval. So now, Jesus, I believe this is is what we're seeing in the Scripture, Now, Jesus, who was already potentially the rightful king of Israel, has now had it passed on to him that he's also the rightful priest of Israel. If a king is only a king and judge, they must judge according to the law as it's presented to them by the attorneys. If a priest is only a priest, then they may bestow righteousness upon someone, but they lack the power of a king to do anything for the person. But when one man is both king and priest, the system is rigged and the accuser has no chance at victory for those that Jesus has called righteous. I'm going to read one more scripture that highlights this for you. and We're about to wrap it up. Then he showed me 
Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. This is in the book of Zechariah. Three. Three, one through four. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? I want you to, re- to pay attention to that. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? This is not an argument that this man has been super righteous. This is actually kind of a contrary argument. Now Joshua dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. I hope that you guys are getting all these things that I'm tying in here. Satan is relentless in his accusations. I brought it back to show you another very, uh, very real description of what happened, is happening in heaven. Satan is relentless. He accuses God's children continually. He hates God. He hates everything that God is, which means that he also hates God's mercy. He hates God's forgiveness that's been extended to humanity. And as the accuser, he stands before God in an attempt to somehow lessen God's love or diminish God's mercy. And finally, those accusations against us fall on deaf ears. In Romans 8.33, we hear, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Jesus is king and priest. We need to be aware of the accuser because we don't want to partner with him. We don't want to believe his words over us. We don't want to believe his words over our brothers and our sisters and our families. We don't want to believe his accusations of God, that God's not actually as good as we might have thought he was. But in the end, the accuser has no power because the system is rigged. And there's one who is both defense attorney and judge. And I want to finish with one last idea, and we're going to take communion together. It's not only Jesus who's a king and a priest. You, (laughs) we are kings and priests. See, we've been ceremonially washed by the blood of Jesus. And he's anointed us with oil, with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so, I'm telling you today that your role in life, when Jordan's talking about going and um, seeing the harvest, the Bible says that we are made ministers of reconciliation. Your role in life is to be both defender and judge of people. Not to agree with the accuser or become the accuser. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession, 
As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The accuser has no power. His power is broken if we play our rightful role. If you lay down your rightful role and you become an accuser, you give Satan the power back to act on this world. But if you will become defender and judge, listen, I'm not saying this as someone who's perfected this. I screw this up all the time. But God's given you the right to become both defender and judge. He even goes so far as to say, whoever you forgive, I will forgive. And whoever you withhold forgiveness from, I will withhold forgiveness from. You've been given a kind of a scary weight to be both defender and judge and to come against the accuser and to break his power. Jesus, thank you. We thank you for the price that you paid so that you could take back the authority from the accuser, give it back to your people so that we could join with you as kings and priests, as judge and as defense attorney. God, we're just humbled by your sacrifice and that you would want to uh, partake of this whole journey alongside us. So thank you, Lord, that you let us be a part. And thank you that you were willing to pay such a high price for us to do so. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode from Clearpath Church in Dallas, Texas. If you'd like more info to visit us on a Sunday morning or to subscribe to our newsletter, check us out at www.clearpathdallas.com. Follow us on Instagram at Clearpath Dallas. Thanks for listening.